Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I'm doing okay myself. I've had a few ups and downs this week, but generally, I'm pretty good. We had a chair yoga teacher training at our studio, Garden of Yoga, with Claire Canine, who was on the podcast a while back. And it was great meeting Claire and all the other participants. It was really lovely. Now, we have a great episode for you this week. It's a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart, and the amazing, exuberant Polly McGee. Polly is a yogi, entrepreneur, teacher, and author of the book, The Good Hustle. I first met Polly when she was leading a yoga business planning intensive workshop in Melbourne recently, and I really enjoyed it. She has a way of really cutting through to the core of what it is that you as a heart-centered business owner are trying to achieve, even when you're not quite sure how to articulate it yourself. So I found the workshop really valuable and Polly is just lovely. She's a bundle of joy and energy and just a pleasure to be around. So Joe and I were really looking forward to catching up with her for this interview. In her book, The Good Hustle, Polly combines the ancient wisdom and philosophy of yoga with contemporary business practices in a compelling blend of mindfulness, spirituality, and entrepreneurial action. It really is a great read, and we have a signed copy to give away. To win a copy of the book, all you have to do is like our Facebook page, and while you're there, tag a friend with a heart-centered business who has a good hustle going. It's that easy. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Now, just before we start the interview, I'd like to ask that you please review, share, or subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcast from. It would really help us get the word out there. All right, that's more than enough for me. Let's get stuck into our conversation with Polly. Thank you so much for meeting with us today, Polly McGee. It's so good to have you here finally. Perhaps you could just start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. My background is so crazy. And I think that that's one of the things that really defines kind of where I meandered around to now. Anyway, I grew up in Sydney in the North Shore. I grew up in St. Ives and had a fairly chaotic world of not ever really knowing what I wanted to do which was a real thing for me as a child I really I felt like I needed some direction I wanted to be one of those kids that wanted to be a ballerina or an engineer and just knew I wanted to know and I just didn't know I had absolutely no idea and I saw everyone else around me so much direction me floating around so this caused me an unnecessary amount of trauma but I finished went to school went to uni hated uni dropped out became a chef did that for a while. That was fun and that kind of suited me a lot because I love food and I love cooking and I love serving people. And if I'm using the lens and the language of now, I'd say that that desire to feed and to serve and to really love people through food was quite strong my whole life. But then I was like, oh, no, I can't keep on doing this. My hands are getting a bit sore. And so I just went down so many rabbit holes in the pursuit of who am I, what am I going to do? which there's a very long list. In fact, in my book, sort of towards the beginning, I actually list out every job that I've done and it is so encyclopedic and it hasn't finished. I've I've added a couple more since then. But it was everything from being a shop fitter and a window dresser and editing adult films and teaching at university and being a senior public servant. Like It's so diverse and people would be like, what? I don't get that. But in the end... I was so sort of like, when am I going to find it? And I felt like I was 
trying on careers and trying on things to do to find out who I was. But I didn't have that the sophistication to think of it like that at the time. I was just rummaging around, putting on ill-fitting jobs and then going, oh, it's perfect. Oh, actually, no, I'm, my circulation's cut off. So in the end, I just sat down and I had a good long hard look at myself and I just thought, I can keep on going forever. I was in my mid-30s by then. It was like, I can keep doing this. And I'm sure my poor husband, who by that stage, had five years of me going, I hate this job. What am I going to do with my life? And he, of course, was the person that was born knowing what they wanted to do. So he was very empathetic, but, you know, he was modelling all the behaviours I couldn't. So in the end, I just thought, what if I was just happy doing what I was doing? What if I just stopped and I went, whatever I'm going to do today, I'm going to do the best I can do. And it was really, it was freakishly transformational. I still get kind of like, eh. and I'd sort of started down a spiritual path by then. I'd started really looking into spirituality sort of in my late 20s. And I was thinking, all these things I practice, all these things I read, all this yoga, all this stuff, it all talks about being present. And here I am still looking into the future to try and find the happy real me when I'm just here waiting. And then I just stopped and kind of became present. And really that was the point at which things fell into place a lot more. So that's a meandering answer about my meandering life. (laughs) Career progression that you can put into a simple sentence. It's not. I just want to say, well, I went to university, did a PhD, and then I've taught at uni and I'm happy for the rest of my life. But, you know, it's just not true. It's so not true. And how perfectly does it set you up to help everyone with helping them discover what they want to do for their lives and having experience in all of these different industries so you can guide and help them. But Joe, this was a real revelation for me and I think that the point at which you really you, you stop questioning and then you think, if I just accept the path, if I accept the day-to-day, if I accept what happens is neither good nor bad, it's just it is what is. And again, we read a lot of that stuff. We see a lot of those memes and there's, there's not often moments where we can apply it to our own lives in that way that's really profound. And then I realised when I started getting particularly into advising businesses and working as an entrepreneur and when I was in radio and I was interviewing people from all different backgrounds that I had this incredible sort of smart generalist shallowness that I knew a little bit about a lot of stuff and it was like so all of that stuff all of those things I did all of those those rabbit holes and pathways I went down they were all leading me to the point where I can sit with you I can empathize with you I can then pull on my intuition with enough lived experience to okay well I think this is what we're going to do and it was so of course that was what I was doing all the time and it was really kind of like oh why did I waste all that time but then that's such a reductive way of thinking but you're absolutely right Nice. And perhaps we could backtrack a little bit. What led you towards this sort of spiritual practice, this and the, the yoga? How, how did you end up there? I think that the, the real truth of that is I was probably very unhappy and I was intrinsically very unhappy. My father died when I was 13 and I'd spent most of my teen years stuffing down emotion and supporting my mother and she had a small family business so dad died and there was a giant hole in that business that had to be filled. So mum stepped in as the business person and I stepped in as the sort of wife at home. And then there was no talk of grief. There was no talk of emotion. It was very much we have to just get up and get on with it, a really classic post-war kind of response that we don't talk about our feelings. We don't, you know, we just... Put a stiff upper lip on it and go about it. So I'd had a strong attraction as a child to mysticism and pictures of, you know, Hindu gods. And, and I came from a totally non-religious family. So I'd sort of almost feel like I was cheating on sort of like my atheism by going out. And I wanted to go to church and I wanted to stop and mum be like, oh, don't, don't be ridiculous. So I'd been sort of pursuing that in a kind of interested reading and understanding way. It wasn't until I sort of got into my late 20s, sort of post my life as a chef, which was 
classically being a chef in the inner city, there was a lot of wild parties, a lot of late nights, a lot of drugs, and a lot of basically just a lot of working incredibly hard. But still, at the end of every waking day, you're like, uh, there's something so missing. And I think that that I had a really sort of profound moment one day of going, I can keep going like this and I can keep on smashing booze into my face or, you know, getting, having things that are numbing out. And there's got to be a point at which I numb in and I start going, okay, what is, what is it that I need to fix here? And that was the beginning of the spiritual journey. I was really, I remember it really clearly. I was sitting on a train and I suddenly thought this misery, this unhappiness, I'm causing it, which means I can fix it. And it was like, and I think up till then I felt like things were always being done to me. The world was being done to me. And I suddenly thought I, I'm the architect of this. And that was just like it was incredible. That was like fireworks because I suddenly went, oh, I, I can fix it. I can fix it. So then the spiritual journey was, okay, what tools do I need to do that? And then that was that sort of process. So really I think a lot of us still, we become spiritual shoppers when we first start thinking, is there something bigger than I? Who, who am I? Like when we have those really fundamental philosophical existential questions, we start looking around and it's like there's a big sort of supermarket out there full of books and crystals and healers and potions and now podcasts and other things. So that really started for me in my late 20s. And I have to say I took to it like a duck to water because I really, it was like I really started embracing the things which in some way I knew to be true and in some way I knew to be a really strong part of me. Yoga was part of that but probably much more and probably still much more yoga as a complete philosophy, the, the limbs of yoga, the yoga as life versus just asana. But I definitely went into it in, like most people do from a physical practice. But when I started really getting into the, the theoretical practice of that, like most things, I really love that a lot. So I sit really deeply and happily in learning around all those things. So, and that's a journey that will go forever. And I'm so happy to know that I can't achieve it in a lifetime. <laughs> and so to completely change direction, how did you get into startup culture? <laughs> Actually, startup culture really suits my brain and it really st- suits my world. So in, when, I, when I lived in Canberra for a period of time, I was working as a public servant and I was working in the Department of Agriculture. Two things which may sound like they aren't things you'd expect me to love, but I loved a lot because I really love farmers and I really love the people from the land. Like there's a real, there's a loveliness to them. So I managed a program for innovative agriculture. And as part of that, I was working all the time with these businesses that were doing incredible cutting edge stuff. It was quite amazing. And it was, I was just really awake when I was with those people and I was talking to them and you'd feel their energy and they'd be doing something which had never been done before that was going to make a really big difference. And the difference between that and just other businesses I'd seen was that these people were so invested. They were so invested on an emotional and an energetic level. And I really like, I physically really responded to that. So I worked with those type of companies more and more and more and I stayed in that commercialization game sort of from a government level working with grants but also starting to work with other entrepreneurs when I moved to Tasmania, I formed a peak body called Startup Tasmania with five other boys that just we just didn't have anyone supporting us in the state at that time. And we were like, again, we just went, well, oh, we really need an organisation. And then we just looked at each other and went, oh, we could do that. Let's just do that. And so we all kind of like threw in $1,000 and it was like, we're going to start this. And it then became the beginning of an ecosystem which still exists now to support entrepreneurs, which we are all super proud about. But it was really just the vibe. And I think... What I, what I really found when I came to write The Good Hustle and I had that kind of moment of putting together that startup journey and the pathway and what I love is it's impermanent and it's so agile and it's so full of the unknown and it's so built on faith. You have to have this rock solid belief that this thing that you think is going to change the world, you don't know how to get there, 
but you know you're going to get there and you know when you will it'll be magnificent so I think I really responded to seeing people who had faith even though it was faith in in their capacity to run a business but it was that same element and I wanted to be the person standing next to them saying you can do this I've got your back and I love what you're doing so I really got into it that way and then ended up just working with those entrepreneurs for years and now have finally become one myself after years of advising I just went like I better have my own startup. I can't kind of keep on doing this. Oh, here, let me help you scale globally. It's like, okay, so now I'm a a CEO. That's my latest job in my job title. But it's the excitement and it's the belief. That's what I love. And so it sounds like that belief is obviously a super key thing and probably the first thing you need, like this idea that you fully believe in and you're fully behind. Are there any other lessons from that realm that you've really, some nuggets of gold for us? I think. I think for me there is that I, I've, I've never met an entrepreneur who said to me, I'm going into this because I'm going to get a Tesla and I'm going to be like on a giant yacht and I'm going to like be throwing money into the sea. I've only ever met people who do it because they see that they're, they're part of something bigger and they want to make a change in a way that's profound and not just in a really micro sense. Now, that's not to say that a beautiful boutique cheesemaker or a yoga studio operator or a massage therapist doesn't have that same drive to connection. But in the startup realm, it's really about almost connecting in with something bigger. Most entrepreneurs are drawn through something that's coming through them. They, they see a vision and they pursue it almost single-pointedly. And I talk about this in the book in that way that when you look at how in the eight limbs of yoga how yogis need to prepare themselves for enlightenment which is a big word that kind of terrifies people but in the way of stealing down and being single focused being a yogi is about having a single focused lens on your life and on getting to this point of enlightenment which is really as we know about dissolving into into everyone else to becoming one with everyone and I think that the single pointedness is a really sort of interesting thing that I took from that realm. It's about actually being able to bring your focus in and hold that focus. It's about the austerities and understanding that austerities, again, in our Western parlance, sound like, oh God, I can't eat chocolate, I can't have champagne. But really, it's about saying to achieve something that is really meaningful for me, that is going to have a really meaningful impact on the world. I actually have to rein myself in and I have to actually recognise that this pleasure and this constant heat-seeking pleasure missile that we all are in the West, when we relinquish those attachments, we can achieve a lot more than we think we can because our minds aren't full and busy of all this consumption and all this need and all this desire. So you see that and you see that in entrepreneurs, you see that in startups because they're happy to literally sit in their garage. So we've got this one narrative that runs around the boys and it pretty much always is boys who are in the garage on their computers smashing away and the next thing oh it's tesla or you know oh it's facebook (laughs) but the reality is that that's actually about the austerity and it's about the soulerness and the loneliness and the isolation and we're not sitting in a cave but i can tell you having sort of just been i'm in a six month sort of journey now of just having started a startup and I've never felt so isolated in my life and lonely is kind of the wrong word but it's actually the isolation and a lot of entrepreneurs said to me oh you know it's really lonely and I'd be like oh shut up you're in a co-working space you've got your mates around you but there is no one except you who's pulling the levers and there's no one except you who has that responsibility and it's a really strange space and it's a nice space I'm happy to be able to be there from an observational perspective and not getting caught up in that oh if only I had someone to help me because it's kind of like this is what they talk about this is that sense of of being solo and alone and I think that's so that's been an interesting parallel I think now I'm in the doing of the doing and the being at the same time I'm really kind of picking up more stuff than I did but I feel those yogic parallels are very very strong still and 
you work through the process. And maybe maybe Nirvana or Ishvara Pranidhan is actually, maybe it's a giant exit and an IPO, or maybe it's actually <laughs> seeing the fruits of your labor in terms of people's lives being changed. Or maybe it's being an abject failure and realizing that you can't have attachment to anything because you don't know what the lessons and the impacts of that failure are going to be on others, which are equally as profound often. So it's really, it's really a very hard discipline of staying in that space and just observing in the centre. That's actually something that was coming to my mind as you were talking, because in one sense, there's the single pointed focus, but also there are the lessons in impermanence and surrender. Mm. So can people get so stuck in their necessary tunnel of focus and drivenness towards this particular goal that they miss out on the signs that maybe this direction is actually not productive? And where does that agility come in to be able to change course when it becomes clear that the project you started is not the project that the world needs? Yeah, 100%, Joan. I, I think one of the great problems for entrepreneurs is that they they love their ideas like babies. It's like, this is my beautiful baby. You never say to an entrepreneur, oh, that's an ugly baby you got there. Because, you know, straight away it's like, they're going, no, 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 we're going to change the world with this. And so it's a, it's a dance. And it's a dance, while I talk about the isolation, that the greatest thing possible is to have a team of people around you who are contrarians and who are challenging your ideas. It's really easy to be on a single track to say, I'm developing, let's say, a piece of software or an app or whatever it is. And I'm, we're going in this direction, but only people who can really tell you what you're doing are your customers. And so unless you are on the coalface from the very beginning, talking to your customers and understanding their needs, you invariably go in the wrong direction because if you're building something for you, you're an audience and a customer of one, you're not going to get very far. This again comes back to yoga. I can pretty much bring everything back to yoga. I, I challenge you to test me. Just add yoga. Everything's perfect. Just add yoga. But the point of that is that when you are in service to others, and this is a key maxim of the yogic journey, when you're in service to others, they are the only people that matter. So I often talk to entrepreneurs about this idea of being in service because aside from the fact that there is such a, a sweet and beautiful connection that you have, it actually means that you don't assume you know better. You don't assume that your lens, your life experience, your gender, your whatever it is, is able to inform the use of the people who are going to be your customers. So when you actually go out and you genuinely consult with people and you genuinely are open, and this isn't just for startups or agile businesses, this is for government. Are you listening? <laughs> All tears. This is for not-for-profits who get very caught up in the the idea of who we're serving without really being on them, talking to their people enough. So we all fall into this trap of the romance of our own idea and that we know enough and we never know enough. So it's very much about listening and being prepared to be wrong. But also then if you have your yogic world of surrendering and not being attached, when the stuff doesn't happen in the way you thought it would, I think, again, we often believe we should be very strictly planned and we're going to have our roadmaps and we're going to have all of our stuff. But we have to wait for the moment that a customer walks through the door and goes, I'd love to pay for that. Can you do this little tweak? And then you can't sort of go, oh, well, no, because we're heading off left and you want to go right. Sorry, buddy. You just have to sort of say, if this is taking me to the ultimate outcome of what I want to do, if this is taking me to my why, of course I can do that. And how soon do you want it? And let's do it together. So the need to be able to really listen without ego and to be able to surround yourself with people who are much smarter than you and who are as committed as you are to the end point is really super important. But the most important thing is listening and listening with intuition and being able to feel when the red flags come up and knowing that it's okay to just stop and be still 
And that while in startup world, we feel like we're constantly having to smash stuff and crush it and work 24 hours a day and, you know, just be the hardest working, toughest mother in the town. The reality is it's really nice sometimes to step back and say, why did I start this? What am I actually doing? And just sit with that. And even if it's a lot longer and a lot more uncomfortable than you thought it should be, I think that often will bring a better result, which is making me think of a quote from Gandhi who said something like, I think this, I'm probably mangling this. Sorry, Gandhi. Sorry. Gandhi won't mind. Sorry, Gandhi supporters. <laughs> but it was something along the lines of they were waiting to go on a giant protest and he had a very strong intuition that it wasn't going to be the right thing to do. And all of the sort of protesters were there. Everyone was ready to go. A few days went by and in the end he said, this is not right. It's the wrong time. We're not doing this. And there was a lot of people that were highly critical of that decision because they'd all been waiting to go. And he just sort of said, look, if I listen to you, I'm not here to listen to you, I'm here to listen to God. It was something along those lines and that I need to follow that. And I feel that that's, that's a lesson that we can all take. You know, you might have all these customers or all these venture capitalists or all these staff who are like, yeah, yeah, we've got to go in this direction. If you are seeing flags and feeling it's wrong, sometimes you've got to honour your gut and just make an unpopular decision and that's what leadership is. So what are some of those red flags that should be sounding alerts for us? Or is it so specific that it's hard to say? It's context specific, Joe, but I think it's also our guts. You know, like I am just a massive, I'm a massive fan of that sense of that, the intuition when you feel discomfort, true discomfort, not the discomfort of being out of your comfort zone, but that thing where you got someone tip, tip, tapping on your shoulder, or you've got the hairs of your neck going up, or you're constantly just having a remembrance that isn't right for me there's a lot of very physical flags that that I kind of let guide me even if I don't know what they are I consult regularly with my inner voice and I do that through meditation I really listen to that sort of I am presence I know that I have a wisdom in me and again I was saying to you guys earlier like that's not something you want to say around a table of investors or you know coder boys. <laughs> Let's all take a moment yeah. to look inwards hey, and check in check and hands on your heart everyone but but the reality is for me that's the way that I do it. I mean some red flags are things like you can't get any traction with your product or what you think it's going to be used for. People are telling you that that's not the use they want it for or that your customers are constantly having problems with it and bringing that to your attention. So I think there's lots of that kind of stuff. And there's macro market stuff where you can't control that at all. But if you're developing a fintech project just before there's a GFC, those kind of things are problematic, but sort of out of your control. So you can keep your eye on the sky and sort of see what's happening in the economy, what's happening in trends, all that kind of stuff. But it's normally a combination of things more than anything else and a lot of it is unfortunately it's it's hindsight driven and you go over that cliff a couple of times and then you know to sort of put your brakes on in time <laughs> the answer could be the same but how do we know when we're on the right track what are the signs to look for for that again like for me the right track is there are no impediments you don't slow down the exact person you need steps in when you need to add that person to your team the exact customer appears the product fix that you needed is in your mind the investors are there every opportunity it opens up for you and I think that's how I know when stuff's rolling and I really learned and I'm so grateful for my meditation and yoga practice because I've really learned to not be clingy about stuff at the moment because I've got a capital round going I'm trying to raise funds and I talk to a lot of investors and I never walk away and just feel crushed if I don't get funded because it's like you're you're not the right person and that was the right conversation having that moment but I'm just going to keep on sitting here and and asking the questions and when the wheels are moving and the flywheels are spinning in the right way, everything will, will line up and, and I have to trust that lining up. So 
again, highly unsophisticated. You're not going to find this in McKinsey, but this is, you know, it, to me, it's the best way to do it. I guess when you're saying about talking to investors, especially for someone who is new to business and stuff, the first time you talk to an investor, it's probably going to be pretty awkward and you're probably not going to know what to say. So it's probably kind of good to get a few of those not so great consults out of the way and fail on those ones so that when the right person comes along, like you are ready, you can nail it. So you're an intuitive genius already because one of the things that they teach you is always have the first meetings with the people who are least likely to ever fund you. So you can do just that. And I had one in Sydney recently with a very kind and generous high net worth and entrepreneur advisor. And truly, there's a lot of grace and humility in the people that work with entrepreneurs and they do go out of their way to be really generous. Anyway, I'd flown to Sydney. The plane was late. So I'd been texting him saying the plane's late. We had one hour together because he had back-to-back appointments all day and had made a lunch hour appointment for me. So I sort of, in that classic way, raced in to a cafe with my moon boot on because I had a broken foot, with all my baggage kind of that sort of really hyped up and I hate being late. So I was all about, oh God, I don't want to waste his time and sat down and just started like rapping with him. And he just said, okay, I want you to take a breath. I want you to have a drink of water. And he said, I just want you to just have a moment because you're so full on and you're, so, you're talking so fast and you just need to bring it all back. If you do this with investors, it's just not going to fly. And it was really, it was so loving and so gentle and so born of that wealth of experience. And it's like, okay, now. Tell me the value proposition. Let's go through this now. And it was really, it was really nice. And I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh God, I'm such a dick. I can't believe I did that. But there was another part of me that just went, that was real and I was being me. And and I really learned a lot from the conversation I had with him. And it was exactly what it was meant to be because that really, it reminded me that like when you're all wound up and you're going a million miles an hour and no, one, no one's ever encountered you before, it's like the full poly show might be just, oh God. <laughs> no, thank you. We pass on this one. But it was really, you know, so it's that kind of stuff where you're like, okay, so now I've got the next meeting. I know I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to be like, are you breathing? Not just in the top of your chest. Are you actually breathing into your stomach? And he said, you know, tell them a couple of sentences, then stop. Let them ask you a question. <laughs> That's very novel. It's good to be able to make the mistakes. But I also feel that what you want from an investor is much like everyone you want in your life. You want them to connect with you on a values level. And I know a number of people who have turned down deals because that they knew the long game would be really bad for them and for their company. And I also know people who have taken deals because they felt they had to and they felt they had to grow and when the rubber hit the road, the clash of values was so profound and it can really destroy a company and a culture because you, are, you end up working towards returning money for the investors versus the things which you don't feel are really right. So that world has to come from a value sort of base. So my feeling is the right person who is going to invest in me will be the one who invests in me and who sort of sees all of that and sees the bigger picture that I'm trying to create and they see the value in that. So perhaps we should take it back a little bit. Could you talk about the good hustle and and maybe talk about what that actually is? So the good hustle was, for me, it actually came out of yoga, surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) I had, in my continual searching for jobs, even though I was practicing being present every day, I still was very much looking for the job that was going to define me, which I still probably hadn't quite 
on an intellectual level, I knew that the job didn't define me, but I was still looking for that thing where I felt I'd got into my groove and I'd found my sort of space and it was, it was stable and secure. I think I'd be probably on an underlying level, I was looking for a level of security and, and this is my label and I'm comfortable in that rather than just being in that, in that very sort of liminal space all the time, which again, is my lesson about that's the space I meant to dwell in and I should just get used to it. So I had finished another really massive, awful corporate executive job and I kind of went, that is, I'm done. I am done. Why do I keep thinking I need to put on a suit and go in there and be that girl? Because I'm not that girl. And who am I trying to prove something to about my capacity? And so as usual, there was an inner narrative kind of going along. So I thought I'm going to take myself off and I'm going to train as a yoga teacher because I just wanted some time out. And there was a yoga teacher training happening in an ashram for two months immersion. And I'm like, that's what I want. It was very spiritually focused. I thought I can just go and sit and read the Gita and gaze at my navel and just have some, just work out what I want to do. I didn't really think I'd come back and be a yoga teacher, but I thought what I will come back and I'd have some perspective. I think it's a very common way people do yoga teacher training. I reckon 50% of people I know are like, I just want to deepen my practice. (laughs) So I went and I was, I was doing my training and I was sitting there and I had this really profound realization around the path of the yogi being very, very similar to the path of the entrepreneur. And it was one of those things that ticked over in my head over and over and over. And and I kept on seeing these parallels. And when I came back, I talked to my publisher because I had a previous fiction book published. And I said to her, look, I've got this idea. I'd always wanted really to write nonfiction. And I'd been saying to her for a while, I wanted to do a book about business for women because I spent a lot of time working with women. And I saw that the same Things that held women back were the same for many women and most of them were emotional insecurity, not being enough, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, what if I bring together these ideas that we've been taught from yoga about who we are and how to become ourselves and how to be in service. And then I paired them with what the map to actually take a product out to market was. And given that I knew a lot of women who were very committed to heart-centered businesses, and again, there's not a lot of language around that. There's not a lot of training around that. But women particularly, and there are, there are men as well, I'm not you know, excising 50% of the, the community, but my, my general world was that women would come to me, that they'd want to do something, they'd want to make a change and they'd want to connect on a heart level, but often then had not a lot of business training or ran out of money or ran out of confidence, whatever it was. So The Good Hustle as a concept, the book was originally called Bhakti Business because I wanted it to be about this idea of like the yoga of love and that when we're in service and we work in love and we don't look to the fruits of our labour, then we can live this really beautiful life without attachment, but we can also earn money, be secure, invest in our communities and invest in the things that are important to us. So it wasn't about saying money is bad. It's about saying this energy that comes to us, this work we can do, it can have real, really great meaning. And the bigger the meaning we make, the more impact we can make on the world. And I think this is a really important thing for a lot of women. So the publisher was like, got the manuscript, loved it. And they said, but the sales team, they just hate the title. No one's going to know what Bhakti is. And I'm like, oh, come on. They can learn. But because I really wanted the work to be out in the world, I was never going to die in a ditch over it. So I was like, I don't care. Like, just call it whatever. Let's all have a brainstorm. So the sales and marketing team went off and some super bright millennial who I'll be eternally grateful to just went, oh, it's just the good hustle. And we were all like, oh, the good hustle. So, and it really suited because it's this idea that the hustle is a thing in entrepreneur world and startup world and it's really about you know being out there being in that gritty grind getting the money doing the deals at whatever it takes whatever costs whatever time of the day it's like full on full on and it's about that world of western burnout and never being enough so we're always working harder and to over that out we're saying okay well the hustle is one thing but when you bring this lens of bhakti and yoga on top of it and compassion and being in service, it really transforms the relationship and it transforms the way you do the work. So 
you know, again, in yoga world, when you're talking about doing things and sort of laying it at the feet of God, whatever that is for you. So if you know, in that tradition of you're giving the work you do to something's greater than you and you're doing it in full sort of full surrendered love, like that idea of bhakti, I really, I really resonate with because I feel like if we treat humans like that all the time, it's such a beautiful experience of looking to everyone as the face of God or the face of love. And so that to me really shifts the business model because it's kind of like it's never about, oh, I'm working so hard, look at me smashing shit out every day. It's kind of like here I am laying this effort at the feet of everyone for the greater good. And it really is a, it's a tremendous and terrific motivator to get up on the days when you don't want to get out of bed and you want to have the doona over your head and just lie in bed listening to Insight Timer all day long. So, yeah, it really works well for me in that. So the good hustle really came from that, but I think it, it really it struck a chord with a lot of people because they don't want to feel like they're just doing some woo-woo kind of, I don't know. You know, they want to feel like they're really in the business well, but they want to have it really strongly connected with their brand and their values as people who are yogis or spiritual or, or compassionate or empathetic or whatever it is. But th- that is a key part of their business model. I feel like as well there is some murkiness in the yoga world when it comes to being selfless and I feel like people are often exploited in that sentiment because this is not a practice we do because we're going to get rich out of it yeah but at the same time I see people in service of other people and maybe they are getting a lot out of it but I think it comes back to what you're saying about how women often do not value themselves as much as they should and I feel like it's a very big discussion that we as a sector and as an industry more broadly need to be very grown up and have a conversation about and it's something that I've I've just written an article for yoga today for yoga Australia really sort of like we know we need to talk about the business of yoga because what I've observed and I've worked with hundreds of, of yoga teachers and business owners now And I've observed a very disturbing thematic around self-worth, around what they can charge, and some of the practices in the industry which are 100% exploitation and about crushing people and telling them that they they have to be around for 10 years before they can ever get paid to teach a class. And there's a lot of people who, unsurprisingly, I mean, just because you teach yoga doesn't mean that you're going to go in there and you're going to be this incredible, enlightened being. And, you know, there are some schools of spirituality that would say that, that, until we're enlightened, we can never be in selfless service because none of us are able to disengage our egos. And I, and I don't disagree with that. I feel we can have a very strong level of awareness and a working towards the being in selfless service. But realistically, we're still an I, we're still an ego, we're still ourselves. And, and we've got bills to pay. Yeah, yeah. We've got dinner on the and table. we're in samsara, delicious samsara. So <laughs> so I think that there is, there's a difficulty which probably can be summed up by saying people who do spiritual work don't think they should charge for it. And I often say when I'm in these conversations with yoga teachers who are like, oh, but, you know, so they came to my class and they just didn't have any money, so I just let them in and and I'm going out backwards and I can't pay my mortgage or I can't pay my bills and stuff. And I say to people, I have never in my life heard a Pilates instructor or a physiotherapist say, I just couldn't charge them. They came to have a session. I couldn't charge them because they value their training. They value their profession and they know that the work that they do has worth, which is very tangible. So someone will come, they're going to pay the money and they're going to walk away and they're going to have that experience. So from a customer side, to feel that it's okay because it's somehow spiritual to kind of spiritually bully people and kind of go, you shouldn't be charging for this. And there's a very strong school of thought in yoga world that you shouldn't charge for yoga, that it came from somewhere and it's a gift from wherever and we don't have the right to charge for it. Now, we live in the West. We live in a world where there is a commercial transaction that happens. 
yoga studios aren't free. Yoga gear isn't free. Lululemon isn't a charity, you know. So we have to work within the bounds that we're in. And if we really value the exchange we're giving, there's a lot of really kind and gentle ways when people come and they can't pay to say, I see you and I hear you and you have value to me like I have to you. So you come and do this class and you can clean or you can help me with some marketing, or you can tell me what it is that you can do that is going to give you a sense of worth. There's lots of ways we can do this exchange. But the culture of people being pushed through trainings with very little support, then going out and opening their own studios with very little teaching and engaging with students, there's a rife sausage factory of commodity teachers, which isn't helping them. And it's not helping the studios who use teacher training as a means to make money because they're not making money because their business models aren't right and then they lose all their best students who open up down the road from them and no one's winning in this model. So we have a few things to really look at and the adoption of the practice that really came out of of large chain gyms to say, hey, come for a month, it's only going to cost you $20 as many classes as you want. What that creates is a commodity mentality where if you shop around, and I have friends who will just go from studio to studio during their one and two week deals because there are so many of them. And if they are not attached to a teacher and in a tradition and wanting to go through a lineage yoga practice, they just want to do yoga. So if someone's going to throw it at you for free, it's like, well, let's just do that. So when the people then get off their one month trial, their experience is something that has a very low value. So why do they suddenly want to pay $80, $900 a month to do it? It really is hard to pull a customer back up. And it's much better to be able to say to customers from the beginning, hey, this has value and I'm going to see you as an individual. I'm going to really tailor a practice to you. Even if it's in a big studio with lots of different teachers, I'm going to match you with a teacher. I'm going to make sure this is a great experience for you. And then we'll give you one of those for free and then you'll know that there's value there. And I think there's lots of different ways we can do the enticement or do the introduction to who we are and really find out what our customers want, be in service to them and retain them. And again, there's a lot of practices that I would bring in from the startup world that I think work much better than the way that things are being done now. And what I see is a lot of desperate, upset, overtired, overworked and burnt out teachers and studio owners who are really losing the love of the practice and the love of teaching the things that brought them there in the first place because of this economic environment that the yoga industry is in. And many teachers will be like, oh, it's just like, you know, it's commodity out there. It's like dog eat dog. (laughs) Are we talking about yoga or are we talking about something else? It's like, you know, it is, it's sort of like that. So we need to have some maturity as an industry and sort of get out of our cheesecloth and patchouli. And if you want to do yoga free, I 100% support that. Go and do that. But that's a very different thing. And that that karma yoga is, is a beautiful thing to do. Do it. But... If you want to have a business that's a yoga business, you need to have it run it like a business and treat your staff like they're valued and support them. Hello, Ran here. Just popping in for a moment to let you know about our Patreon page. Now, this podcast will always be free, but from as little as $1 a month, you can help support the podcast. Higher tiers get great benefits such as shoutouts on the podcast and access to extra content. And speaking of which, we've filmed a short bonus video with Polly where she talks about transforming your amazing heart-centered idea into a good hustle. She shares some great information, so just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast to learn more. I'll leave a link in our show notes. Alright, let's get back to the conversation with Polly. 
funny you should mention the intro deal because it's something we've been working with at our own studio and we've definitely seen both sides of it. We have had people who've got the intro pass and have like stayed on and tried lots of our different classes because for us, a lot of people will come to us for aerial because there's not that many aerial yoga studios around, but because they've got the pass, they'll try all of the other classes that we offer and then stayed on at the end of the pass. We've had one person come to 15 sessions on, on a the 10-day day intro pass. At the <laughs> they deserve a prize, right? Yeah. That's a commitment <laughs> to their bodies. I celebrate that. Uh, and she was lovely and put a lot of good energy to all of those sessions. So it's a really interesting one. And when I had a tiny studio with three people, I didn't have any intro offers because I'm like, I've only got three spots. I'm booked out. But it's so expected when you have a bigger space. And in some ways, it has worked really well for us. And it has worked really well with reaching people who don't have as much money, who maybe wouldn't, you know, shell out $35 for an aerial yoga session and then stay on for the mat class, which is another $20 afterwards, and have ended up like becoming part of our community and part of our family. But we've also like looked at our week and just been like, oh my gosh, like we can't pay our bills if everyone is on an intro pass and all our classes are full. But yeah, <laughs> so we were going to ask you about that. <laughs> Look, it's really super tricky. And, I, and it was only when I toured around with Yoga Australia last year and was just talking endlessly to yoga teachers and hearing their stories that I realised how pervasive that thinking had become. And so I thought a lot about, so what does the intro pass do? And if we, if we go back to basics, this is where if we hark back to our earlier conversation, if we go back to basics and say what are we trying to achieve with this so the outcome of what we're doing is to have a consistent flow of cash through the door and what a lot of the teachers I spoke to really struggled with was this idea of consistency and that their incomes were so lumpy that it's very hard to have what we can pay that's this week so you need to know that those people are going to come back the reason that people stay in any business and are loyal and Each sector has different retention times, depending on what it is. If you're having software as a service, you might have retentions from 11 months to 15 months, maybe longer. But, you know, there's always competition out there. So the thing that you need to do is to get people attached to your brand. You want people to be such raving evangelists that whatever the cost that you charge, and it's it's reasonable because it's within the pantheon of what people charge for yoga, that they are going to choose you every time. That happens. We know that happens and we know people pay more when there's a personal connection. There's always things like convenience and price sensitivity, but generally when we feel good and when we have a transformational experience and the majority of people come to yoga because they're unwell on on some level and they're looking to connect, they're looking to fix their bodies, they're looking to fix their hearts, whatever it is, when that happens, we can't put a price on that. And so instantly the value proposition becomes very different and you're thinking about the other things you aren't going to spend money on. You won't get that bottle of wine or you won't go and do that thing You'll because you will just be anything you can do to get that feeling of wellness again, that feeling of surrender, that feeling of stillness. So my feeling is that what makes people be loyal is a connection. And I think for the owners who are happy to have people come to a month or two weeks of free classes, the better value proposition for them is to say I'm going to sit down with you for an hour and I want you to tell me all about you and your life and what it is that's brought you here what you're looking for in this because I want to know that either I can say to you hey I think you're great but you're not going to suit aerial yoga and you may not sit anything here but I've got a friend who's teaching this down the road and I want to send you to them you want to know up front that you and your teachers are the right match the right values fit the right what we call in startup world product market fit 
And once you can establish that product market fit with your customer, you can say, okay, so these are the classes I think you should do. These are the teachers who are going to work best with you. And then let's have a go. So I want you to come and experience this. And then afterwards, I'm going to sit down with you and I'm going to talk you through it. Because that way, if you think about what, again, we would call in Startup World, the, the customer journey mapping. So what happens to the customer just before they make a decision to do yoga? So it's not even, they're not even lurking outside your front door. They're somewhere in their own lives having the crisis, the sort of point at which they have to do something to make a change. So you've got to, if you really think about that whole journey and you have a persona of that customer and you're saying, okay, so you've got your person here, what are they doing? How are they making that choice? Where might they be finding you? Where are they looking for you? What's going to make them say Ariel over Bikram or hot or flow or yin or whatever it's going to be? Yoga lattes, any kind of hybrid weirdness. And then you've got to work out, so where do you actually intersect with your customer really early on? Where can you give them information? Where can you give them more than they're getting? And that's not when they're in the studio getting the freebie, which is actually taking a dollar out of the mouth of your hungry cat. What that's doing, you want to be with them when they're making those decisions so they're informed as to what really the best thing is for them. That additionality, that additional value for them, that's really good value for you because that means you you write it once and you sell it a thousand times. So you've got blogs out there, you've got your podcast, you're talking about the value, they can intersect with you then. So the world is really about how do you find those customers and connect with them really early on. So by the time they get to the studio, they know you and they love you and they want what you have and they know it's going to be the thing that's going to fix them and they won't think twice about signing up for a month or for a year. Like you want that type of customer. And so the heavy lifting is done at the decision-making process and that's usually done by giving more than they get, really having them so well informed that they know what they want. Someone who is going to love a big, shiny corporate studio experience may not necessarily want to come and have an intimate eight-man experience because they want something different from that. So you know that's not your market to start with. So really nailing down rather than going through the cookie cutter yoga 101, how do we do it? We just do lots of socials and we put everything on Facebook and Instagram and then we just give out free passes. It's really a much more sophisticated understanding of the purchasing decisions that that customer is making in all contexts of their life before, during and after. And the after is really important as well because you want to be able to follow up once people have come, particularly in the early days, and say, how are you feeling two days later? And just a little email, how are you feeling? What is there anything that's come up for you? Can we support you? Because sometimes when you first start, this stuff's going to be a bit different for you. So really getting that it's much bigger than just that experience they're having in the room. Those little things, those little follow-ups are the things that are going to make them feel seen and heard and as the fundamental human condition that we miss out on. When someone sees us and hears us, we are loyal to them for life. And so I think we need to sort of rework the way we do our marketing, the way we do our promotions for yoga, because I just don't believe that that it's ever going to be profitable. And you're ever going to really get the amount of upselling and, and additionality from doing the free stuff. I just don't think that that conversion exists. And I think people were more hardcore about analysing what the actual numbers are. They would find that they have got money leaking out the door and there's a better way to do it. And the simplest way is just to go, we don't do that because we're really valuable. We'd love you to experience it. But if you want that, there's that place down the road, they'll give you a month. We've got to stand our ground. We've got to stand in our space and say, we've got a value here. What we do changes people's lives. Every single one of us as teachers has had a student that has told us at some point that they were going to kill themselves or they were self-harming or they were you know, in terrible circumstances. I've had so many of these conversations 
and yoga was the yoke that pulled them out of the most horrific circumstance. So they're already committed for life. And often you have no idea because they say nothing at the time, but then three years later, that's when they'll tell you. Yeah, Yeah, that's right, which is why at the beginning to be able to sort of sit down with students, and again, like there's an upfront opportunity cost of time when you're spending time and investing time early in the relationship. But I feel that the payoff of that is going to be to have a much longer retention, much better additionality in terms of product services, one-on-ones, anything else that comes with that, they'll bring a revenue stream in. And it also helps that person to, to really be part of the wholeness of yoga. It is interesting as well because it's not just your time, it's also their time. Yeah. And I find a lot of people won't even take the time to fill out a new client form, which is all about, tell me about you. What do yeah. you want to get out of this practice? Yeah. How can we make this better for you? And, you know, people just don't even take the time to fill that out. So I wonder if there are people who, when you say to them, come in, I want to sit down with you. I want to learn all about your needs. Or just be like, no, I don't have time for that. I just want to work out. Or, you know, I just want to go to a flow class. Yeah. And there probably will be. And there's there's a moment where you can say, hey, you, you can slow down here. You don't need to run so fast. And that you can you can connect or that you can say so you're probably not going to be someone who will stay for a long time and will be if you want a studio where people are going deeper and bringing in more of the limbs and again like I have no criticism at all I'm completely agnostic to people who want to go to a gym and do a 45 minute yoga session any yoga is good yoga it's all gateway to a path of enlightenment and I don't care how you get on that path and I think lots of people do want like a quick sort of smash 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 but then that's not the studio you guys are running and if it was you'd be in a gym up the road and you'd have that sort of world so I think when you when you have a more specialized and niche and bespoke practice you can charge more for it you're offering something that's much more unusual there's a value in that it's not commodity I do teach at a gym up the road. Yeah, I teach at a gym too. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like that, it's like there's so many bodies you see in gyms. I love it when I see men who do a lot of weight work doing yoga because you know how tight their bodies mm. are. And it's the greatest thing ever because it's, it's a really good thing to see someone for the first time see what yoga feels like on a body that's incredibly tight. So, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very pro it. I don't think we can be like, oh, yoga should be done here. It's like it's not that rarefied. Yoga is for the people. It should be done everywhere with everybody. Oh, absolutely. And people just seem to soak, you know, you throw a little bit of philosophy and meditation at them, they soak it up. They love it. Everyone just, they just really need it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> one subgroup that I've encountered at gyms and nowhere else is like men who've retired who now have time through the day who just discover yoga and you can just tell how good it makes them feel and how they love it so much like there was this one older guy in particular when I do the guided relaxation I would literally get to relax your knees and he'd already be snoring every single time (laughs) I love it that's right I mean I feel that Again, like, I mean, I'm talking when I say I'm talking through my lens, through my eyes, through my experience. And it's really it's really important that we never kind of have a universaling view of what our, our opinions are. My opinion about yoga is that I so often see it through this lens of youth, beauty and flexibility. And it's always made me very distressed because I think one of the key groups who really benefit from yoga are older people because A, it keeps them flexible for longer, but often it's a real balm to many hearts. It's a real balm to loneliness and to isolation and to sort of getting to a retirement age. And, you know, just there's a lot of stuff that is often not repaired in people who are that baby boomer or post wear generation that they wouldn't have come to yoga necessarily. But when you get them there, it can be incredibly transformative and healing and nourishing for them. But 
if most of them are going to see pictures of yoga, which are people doing a backbend or doing these pretzel poses in lycra, it's really off-putting. And most people would say, oh, no, I can't do that. That's not for me. Yeah. And I, I reckon half the people I speak to, including myself when I first started doing yoga, I think the first thing I said to the yoga teacher I went to was, I'm very inflexible. And he, to his credit, he's a, he was a fantastic teacher. And he just shot me down in flames. It was fantastic. It was a very excoriating experience of sort of going, you know, that's, just, that's ridiculous. No one's flexible. Get in that class and heal yourself. And it was really great. And I loved him. And, and I pretty much did teacher training because of the what he had said to me about the bodies that should be healed and the people that weren't represented on the mat. And he was very much into inclusive diversity. And I think that that's the right thing. And I'm always really happy. And I know your studio is very big on diversity. And we want all the bodies. We want all the bodies together in celebration and in healing where they need to be for themselves on the mat. And it's the beauty of yoga as a practice. Like it is so adaptable. Like it doesn't yeah. matter what you've yeah. got going on. Like yeah. you can adapt this practice so you'll get what you need out of it. And it's so sad when you just don't see that represented yeah. at all yeah. online and in the media and people yeah. are turned away from yoga because they don't look like what they see represented yeah. there. It's not just yoga. That's the interesting thing. It's every part of life. And if you can't see it, you can't be it. I really believe in that. And it's one of the things that drove me for better or for worse to take on running this edtech business because there's so few women in technology. There are so few female CEOs of startups. There are so few women who are funded by external capital. And you never see them. So unless you, you actually represent, I think, you know, unless I can stand up and say, well, I'm going to be that person. And I was that person in corporate world who was tattooed and he didn't look like a regular Joe. Like I think there's, there's a reason to break down barriers and to get in there and do the work. And sometimes you are on your own, you know, as Brené Brown would say, you know, you're, you're standing in a field and you're looking around and just thinking, oh, I'm, I'm here again. <laughs> but it has to happen and it's really important. And I, yoga gives us the, the capacity to have this appetite for doing that in other areas of our lives. But the underrepresentation in everything is terrible because everyone just feels marginalised. And it's we've got it. We can't have a cohesive society if we only want it for straight, white, able-bodied heterosexuals, effectively, who are middle class with educations. <laughs> I guess that leaves us to one of your brilliant catchphrases, <laughs> be it, till you are it, which... I suppose is coming from the perspective of maybe the marginalised person or the person who's just not feeling secure that they can be that person that they want to be or they feel like I'm not ready for that important role or I'm not ready for that challenge and it's just like no, no one feels ready. You've got to start doing it and that's how you learn to do it. No one is ever ready for anything in their minds and so be it till you are it, which has sort of become a catch cry of mine was really as a violent physical reaction to hearing so many women particularly and also hearing and seeing on memes everywhere, fake it till you make it. Now, given how many women are already suffering with terrible imposter syndrome and men, let me say, it's it's, it's rife. It's not just women, but women seem to have it sort of in a, in a more acute and visceral way. This idea that we would fake anything, that we already would be prepared to lie about who we are, it just, it just it rings so untrue to me. And if you think about what I was saying earlier about that idea that we have this quiet voice within, that we have this intuitive wisdom, we're born with it, it comes through with us. And again, taking into consideration, I clearly have particular beliefs about that stuff. But if you believe that we have got an intuitive knowledge, we already are it. We can't see the beauty. You know, we're always trying to dust off that mirror so we can see the divinity within. If we are born as the face of Buddha or the face of Krishna or whoever it is, we exist as individual incarnations of that pure love 
So it's okay to go, I don't see myself there. I don't, I'm not the CEO, I'm not this person, but that's not to say I'm not going to get there. And so when you be it till you are it, you just stand in there proudly and you do it until the moment where you suddenly realize that, that you already knew it all and you already had all those skills, but it was your own head. So if we just, if we stop referencing everything to our upstairs board of asshole directors, and if we move down into where the work's done in the being and done in our hearts, then, then that's where we be it. And if we just stay in our hearts, we aren't putting judgments and labels on things. So I like be it to you. And it really resonates with people. They kind of, they get it. Cause I think a lot of people don't want it, that idea that they're faking it. Cause if you're faking it at some point, you've got to go, actually, that didn't really happen for me, you know? So you've got to be able to sort of, say and also when you're faking stuff you can't fail so if we move to one of my other favorite things to talk about which is growth mindset and, and how to sort of be in a place where you are vulnerable and able to fail and from that's the only place we're going to get learning from when you're being it till you are it you can ask questions because you're learning you're in a space of spacious curiosity when you're faking it you can't let a chink appear in your armor and you are tight and you are stressed and you don't want at any point someone to call you out so you're constantly armoring and putting on masks, which is one of the terrible things we see in society. It's so physically and emotionally destructive. But when you can fail, you can just be like, well, I'm just being it. I'm not <laughs> are it yet. <laughs> and it just allows us to, to be much more real and much more human and much more vulnerable. And it's a much healthier place for us to be in. I've got a friend who's a hula hoop teacher. Shout out to Donna Sparks. And she's got her own take on it, which is do it until you can. Yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful flavour of that as well. Absolutely. And the thing is, what, what sort of puzzles me is this idea that somehow we think we should be able to be really competent at stuff when we first start doing it. And I keep saying to people, so when you were a baby, you just came out running. It was all good then. <laughs> but when we're children and when we don't have that, that sort of lens of perfection or what we should or shouldn't do, we smash into stuff, we fall over, we put the wrong colour paints in the wrong holes, we don't care, we get dental over us, we don't care. And we, we just, we in this curious expansion all the time. And then we just get shut down by institutionalised learning and we, we stop having that curiosity and we just feel like we need to be able to do it all the time and be good at it. But every single thing we do, we start from a zero base. And in yoga, we talk a lot. See, I just went back to yoga. <laughs> like a magnet. But, you know, we, we talk often about beginner mind. And it's, it's a really great thing to stop some days and just go, let, let me enter this day with beginner mind. And it's a really lovely feeling of sort of going, I, you, you remember that time when you were just open to everything and bumbling around and you were looking to others to lead and to to teach you and you are sort of it's just it's a place of real softness I think and we can all we can all engage with beginner mind a little bit more but it's an exciting thing too like acquiring new skills is really fun mm. Mm. it took me way too long to realize as well that say you're trying something new for the first time like maybe you're getting flyers printed and you don't know how to set them up for the printer or maybe you're just using like a new hardware tool or something. I used to think I had to pretend I already knew how to yeah. do it. But now I'm just like, this is my first time doing this. Have you got any tips for me? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the vulnerability. Like when we have to be cool and smart at everything, we miss out on learning a lot. Like I'm all for like, how did you do that? What is that thing you've got there? Because that way you might be like, oh, that's exactly what I needed. And, you know, thank God for YouTube being able to teach us with all those explainer videos. And so I think we, there is a nice way of being able to go, I don't know how to do that. How do you do that? But to just be able to ask, and I think this is really impactful in workplaces as well. People really sort of feel that they sort of turn up and they have to be on all the time rather than be able to go around. It's, it's the best way to be actually meet people and to 
engage conversations because it's great. So hey, I can't do this. Can people you help me? like being an expert. Yeah. People really like helping people you and explain helping. that thing that they love to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so you're in service to them when you allow them to guide you and to teach you and to then everyone feels good. It's it's a misunderstood art, the art of asking questions and not knowing everything. <laughs> Perhaps we could go back to the startup world a little bit and maybe you could explain the idea of an MVP, a minimum viable product and how that relates back to yoga. I'm trying to do a lot of cross-pollination with those, those terms. And actually the startup world and the software development world that it can teach every business and also personal life hacks. We can actually teach us a lot because it's a system that's designed to work with a gross amount of unknowns, which again is why it's so much like yoga. <laughs> and in the unknowns is where most people feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But that world is really applicable. So the MVP or the minimum viable product, this came out of a book called The Lean Startup by a guy called Eric Ries, who's widely seen as the real, the beginning of this idea of building products in conjunction with your customers. So the minimum viable product says that for the least amount of money, you can create something which has the very rudimentary functions that will allow a customer to understand what it is and then engage with you to continually iterate to improve it. So it's a world that I love a lot because it's a world that says that everything's imperfect, nothing's ever finished, and it's always iterating, it's always growing, and that organic movement of growth is very much driven by the people who are using it. It also says that no one can ever know everything they need to. So none of us are as smart as all of us is really the underpinning of that. Now, I was listening to a fantastic audio book the other day by a really beautiful, heart-centered, vulnerable entrepreneur called Rand Fishkin, who pioneered one of the first software-as-a-service SEO companies in the world. Really clever young guy. And he's been really working this new angle, which I've resonated with very strongly, which is that the MVP is is kind of rubbish because for a lot of people, the minimum viable product is actually quite shit and that's not the customer experience you want to have. Mm -hmm. So he says what you need to develop is an exceptional viable experience. So even if it takes you a little longer to develop, it's kind of a nice middle ground. So it's not a place where you are just in a white room, in a white coat, developing something to the end degree, getting it out, presenting it to the world, only to find everyone's like, oh, I really like that, but I wish it was a different colour, or I wish it was a different shape, or I wish it actually had this function. It's kind of saying, for the best that we can do, within the limited funding we have, we're going to give you a really great experience, an exceptional experience, but it's not going to be a hundred bells and whistles. It might have five bells and whistles and we want you to help us with the rest of it. But we've got a fairly good idea because we've done all this work in user experience. And so, Joe, what I was talking about before when we were talking about what does the customer do before they even think about yoga, that's a real user experience kind of thing. You would be out there talking to customers constantly, really testing that hypothesis you've developed of the problem that you're solving and then being able to bring that to developing something that at the first use, they'll really understand that this is going to solve that problem. And there's, there's probably different variations of that for different businesses. In a software world or in a tech world, you're often building stuff that is very experimental because you're solving a problem that hasn't been solved before. So when I talk to yoga businesses about this, we know that yoga solves a pretty fundamental problem, and I mean with a lot of tentacles, but it solves really a problem of, of how people feel about their lives and how people feel about themselves and a connection to yoking them together. If the original principle of yoga is for us to yoke together. So... 
the question of what does a minimum vial product of yoga look like? Well, with the product exists. So yoga in and of itself, that's stepped out pretty clearly. The thing that we haven't seen the exceptional viable product is how you're going to bring that to the world. So what is your yoga that you're bringing to the world? What is the thing that differentiates you? And how are you packaging that up and taking it into a market where we know that the fundament's right? And this is really true of any mature industry where we've we've had cars for 100 years, let's say. We've had X, Y, Z for 100 years. But how do we make them better? How do we innovate so the user experience is, is exactly what the user needs? And particularly as we move into an era of one-to-one, much more than one-to-many, not just in yoga but in in lots of things so we've come to this era of deep personalization and as augmented reality and artificial intelligence and machine learning continues to be seamlessly as part of our world that's going to infiltrate everything it's already in yoga it's already in the apps we're seeing and the intuitive apps that are teaching us what courses to do and what moves to do in a class put together in an app at the touch of a button so as yoga teachers how do we do that and there's a big movement which i'm very very supportive of of moving back to yoga as a therapeutic modality one to one one to small not one to large really seeing it as a medicine that is applied to the body and the mind and the soul and that helps healing and i think it's the exceptional viable product is about saying how do we go back to probably the basics of yoga and get back to unpacking what that was about. But I think it's more about how do we build that for ourselves as individual people, find gaps in the market where yoga can be applied liberally, overtly or covertly. And that to me is what the MVP is. But in a more broad sense, it's the thing that you can first get into the market. So again, in a yoga example, if you just finish yoga teacher training, your MVP might be to do pop-up yoga in a park. It might be to guest in a studio or do a studio takeover. It might be to do some kind of an online thing so you can just test the water and you can show your potential customers that your yoga delivery is a product market fit for them. And then as you build up that audience, as you know that they're, they're strong and they're loyal, then you would move to a bigger investment, a bigger commitment, maybe a studio, maybe a lease, maybe a studio like a, a video studio or a video whatever it is but it's usually that the the amount of investment is commensurate with the amount of revenue as your business grows and if your business isn't growing your mvp probably hasn't quite hit that product market fit and you need to keep on iterating at that very inexpensive end because mostly we're bootstrapping and we've got no money it's, it's a story for yoga teachers everywhere just like it is for software developers so that's the mvp I guess as well, that also balances things out somewhat because I totally feel what you're saying about how yoga is often at its most fulfilling one-on-one or one person and small groups. But if it's going to be financially viable for you to live your life as a teacher, you have to charge quite a bit for those one-on-one sessions, which means it's a small section of the population who is quite affluent who can actually afford to come to a one-on-one yoga class And often they are not the people who, I mean, I'm sure they need yoga, everyone can benefit from yoga, but the people who are really struggling and have real massive life issues who could really get a lot out of this practice can no longer reach that point where they can afford to come to a one-on-one class. So the things that can help you build as a teacher, which are relatively inaffordable, like, you know, it's not a huge financial outlay for you to put on a class in the park or to do an online video or something, also gives you a chance to help the people who will maybe not be able to come to your one-on-one session. 
Yeah. So it kind of works both ways. Jo, it's a really interesting and beautiful discussion as well, which I think there's that, again, I would like to see us as a sector and an industry having in a much bigger way because unfortunately we are catering to the, the walking well. And they're the people who are coming in in the main and, and doing yoga and buying the outfits and having a practice. And I've, I've had this discussion at sort of conferences and stuff and it's quite tense often because no yoga teacher wants to say that they're only working with like wealthy middle class people who can afford to have a, a sense of self-awareness. What I often say is that the audience that can most use what yoga can bring are usually ones that, that aren't even in a position to get out of their houses to get to a yoga class. When your back's against the wall, emotionally, financially and physically, you're thinking about putting food on the kids' table, paying for their school uniforms, trying to work three jobs, potentially deal with a, a rental situation. You aren't thinking about self-care. You aren't thinking about taking a still breath. You aren't thinking about sitting you know, with a straight back. You aren't thinking about any of that. You're just thinking about survival. And normally you have a small amount of disposable income and what you may have is often going to numbing behaviours. And that's a gross generalisation. But if we think about I remember I had a really a difficult conversation around, oh, well, you know, we just need to get more Aboriginal people to come into yoga. We should just go into their places. And it's like, oh, yeah, just like we did on those boats. We need to find the bridge. So we need to find a way that if we see yoga as the common wheel and the common good, we have to make it available to people so they can actually get to it. There has to be a meeting of the world where there has to be a recognition that it is what they need. And it's going to possibly come after a traditional medical model and the kind of medications and the prescriptions that come with that. So we often will get people who have the time and the finances to go on a journey of discovery. When I say, oh, I just took two months off my executive job to go and sit in an ashram and do yoga. Now, you can unpack that, that I wasn't about to be thrown out of my house. I was able to have two months without an income sitting navel-gazing and then swan back into my life and write a book. You know, like there's, there's a lot of clear assumptions there about the life that I have, you know, and that I'd work for, but the life that I have that other people aren't going to have that luxury of doing that. That is a luxury of time and a luxury of circumstance. So... I don't assume that it's available for everyone. And this is a real problem because I think that many of the bodies and particularly physical issues, mental health issues, we know how well they respond to yoga and we're not able to get that in there. Now, I believe we are very, very slowly inching towards a time where the medical model is seeing that yoga has consistent benefits and is starting to recognise that it has a place in a mixed modality of traditional medicine. But it's still not being subsidised. It's still not, people aren't still getting money to go to, you know, they can go to a chiropractor and get a subsidy. They can't go to a yogi and get a subsidy. So when we do the one-on-one yoga and the therapeutic yoga, what I like to think is that, yes, it is catering to people who can afford it, but also the benefits that come from it are usually for people that are at the end of their rope. They're going to that mode because nothing else has worked. And they can have very quick and profound health changes, which means that the expensive medication that they're on the lifestyle things which cost them money when they're dealing with diabetes or dealing with something else, that can shift and can kind of make some money available. But we undoubtedly are in a difficult place where the people, like most things, the people that need our help most are the people that are least able to access it from a personal position as well as from a financial and social position. And how do we stand in a place with our arms out, ready for when they're ready to be met by us, not that we're pushing yoga onto people, that they understand it's really going to be something that is culturally and physically and socially and everything else ready for them. Yeah, because it's super condescending to say to someone who's like struggling with homelessness, do you know what you need? You really need some yoga. Mm. Oh, I'll just get that domestic violence order sorted out, then I'll come right down to the studio. Like, that's what I mean. There's a real, 
you know, when we are in fight or flight, when we are in that world, we are not thinking about enlightenment or self-awareness and we don't have the time and the space for it. That's not what our brains are wired to do. Our brains are wired for survival and it's really tough because, you know, people evangelize about yoga. You know, we all have that moment where we're like, oh my God, you should just do some yoga and it's like, just piss off with your yoga. I just want to smash a gin and tonic and go to bed. You know, so you can't you can't be that kind of pusher, but you just have to be there ready. And I think some of the best ways of doing that is just that world of leading by example, by just being yoga, not in a patronizing, condescending, pushy sort of way, but in a when someone's looking at you going, why are you so happy all the time? Why do you look you you look much better than you used to? It's like, well, I do yoga meditation. Oh, that won't work for me. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, this is what I do. Like, if you want to talk about it any time. And I think that's the only way to do it. But that's everything, isn't it? I am actually really lucky because our local council, Darabin Council, runs like a free exercise program that I've taught on for the last few years. So like I teach a free Pilates class and there's like something on every morning of the week. And it is super awesome getting to see the diversity of different people who come. You know, mums can bring their kids, run toward a pretty crazy family-friendly <laughs> family yoga class. Oh yeah. Super and, hectic. Yeah. <laughs> Super, super loud and um, sort of, it was fun though. And that's yoga too. Like yeah, that, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to have all the floaty music and flutes. No, it can no. just be screaming children and that's okay. And if you're thinking about community health dollars and especially mental yeah. health dollars, putting that small yes. amount of money in to have that program where people can get out of their houses and meet up with the community, it's that prevention mm. rather than cure model. So it's really like I'm super happy to be a part of this program and to see it working and I think it can be a really good bridge between what you do as a teacher which is your own self-generated income earning I guess Mm -hmm. to being part of these larger community programs where someone else takes care of the organizing and the marketing which is actually massive for a community class like even if you did want to offer a free class the amount of effort that you need to put Absolutely. into getting the word out there around it often makes that class not viable in terms of the amount of people that show up but the good thing is because of the spaces those classes are in the people that would feel very uncomfortable and unwanted walking into a studio they can walk into a community hall or a park. a park yeah. yeah so i think the the good the good thing that's happening is that the the wealthy white people are taking on wellness and mindfulness like there's no tomorrow. And the economics of wellness is really great for the bottom line. What we know is that when people are proactive about their wellness, particularly around mental health and stress, they they come to work a lot more. They're a lot more present. They're a lot more productive. So if you want to put it into the wheels of the economy, which is often what drives the decisions that very, very slowly filter down to the community and the grassroots level, we can see that when those companies and corporations are adopting wellness and mindfulness programs like Topsy and that they can't get enough of that, eventually that then moves into government and into the wheels of power and it's kind of like, oh, okay, that's, that might work there. I mean, I don't know how long I've been wanting to see yoga in prisons and yoga in, in those kind of facilities because there's a beautiful film actually that a, a Buddhist nun called Rabina Corton made that you may or may not have heard of. So she's... She did a lot of work or she does a lot of work with prisoners who are on death row. And again, when you talk about taking the parallels of mindfulness and meditation into everyday life, there's very little difference between sitting in a cell in solitary and sitting in a cave. There's a lot of clearly contextual difference, but the mechanisms of what is it that you're doing in there locked up for 20 hours a day, when you bring mindfulness and meditation into those terribly aggressive suffering-filled environments, 
the individual can find peace within, even if the context around them is, is full of crazy. And so what we know this works and we know that it transforms people's lives and that, again, the prison thing is a whole other story and that the idea that, we can't, that everyone isn't capable of, of being a divine human and that we make terrible choices because we're bad people. That's just not the world. We make terrible choices because we're human. And uh, we because we're in terrible circumstances. Yeah, and they're driven by the, our context. So I feel that we are, we're in a, a much better time than we've ever been for a, a rising awareness that we're all sick and we're all suffering and it's getting really profound and unfortunately people who have got money and wealth and power are sick and suffering as well and so they're trying to do something about it. Now that, that will trickle down and so again really making sure that when people have had amazing experiences they understand and have mechanisms to pay it back because when you, as I said at the very beginning, when you have those transformative experiences, you, you want to do anything to share that with the rest of the world. When you feel well for the first time or when your body isn't hurting you for the first time, you know, people will do anything to, to share that. And so it's really about being able to show the benefits and the opportunities to get this into grassroots. So get it into schools, get it into communities, get it into areas where you have a lot of people that might come along and have a try and there's your gateway drug and then there's opportunities for them to keep on doing it. So I'm very hopeful that that it will filter down, but I'm very aware that there's a there is a lot of privilege in our world. So perhaps we should change text slightly again. That seems to be my role in this conversation. You're very much about the retro and the, the agile and the forward. It's like you're the pivot. <laughs> Over here now. I went to one of your workshops facilitated with Yoga Australia and uh, I found it was a, an awesome experience. And I feel that part of what you do so well is you seem to be able to cut at the core of what someone is trying to deliver in terms of their, their message and in terms of their, their teaching, I guess. Is, is that something that evolved naturally or have you had to work at it? Could you talk about that just a little bit? Perhaps? Yeah, and it's, again, it's a real practice for me. So I've mm. been presenting and facilitating in front of groups for probably 10 years now, I reckon at least, probably a bit more. And a lot of that started for me when I was teaching at university. So I would be teaching big classes. And it was the first time I'd really, like I went from, not having taught anyone into teaching classes, 60 and 70 students, just because that's what happens. You, you get a degree in. And I was asked to come in and teach this thing. I had a particular expertise in around commercialisation and entrepreneurship. I had never really sought to be a teacher in a university, but I was, I was working, running their intellectual property unit. And they were like, we need someone who understands what you're doing, startup world. So what I really realised early on is that it was really fascinating to me all looking at all the people and seeing how they engaged and seeing the ones that were really listening and really there and the ones that were just off and feeling like I had a real responsibility all the time to make everyone engaged, everyone happy all the time. So over time I really started learning around the mechanics of groups and how they interact and it came very strongly back from my craft to being around people having an experience of being seen and heard. So I had this real sense that if someone came to my class, and this again was another sort of hangover from yoga, I had a yoga teacher that said to me one day, I don't care if you come to my class and you lie in Shavasana the whole time because your experience, what you take away from that may be so much more profound than someone who's just like getting in there and smashing all the poses. I don't need to control your experience of the learning. I just need to give the best learning I can. And I really kind of took that in. So the times I'd see the students there with their heads on their desk, rather than going, oh God, I'm so boring, they're clearly asleep, I'd be like, that person's exhausted. Maybe I'll just go over and like put my hand on their shoulder for a minute and just give them a back rub. Or maybe I'll just sort of have this moment of real empathy. So bringing in my Buddhist practices and my yogic practices, 
I started whenever I go into a room. So this is this is the actual mechanics of how I do it. Before I get to the class, I have a meditation and I I call in everyone who's going to be in that room that the right people are in the room and I I acknowledge and respect that the right people are going to turn up in the room that day. So if one person turns up or if 50 people turn up, it is about who I need to serve on that day. And then I make an intention that every single person who is in that room I will be able to see them and hear them and respond to them and they will feel like they have been fully acknowledged and respected when they leave. And that colours my whole practice. Back in the early days, I was a horrific over-preparer and I would like, everything would be written out, slides, you name it, like there was, it would be so structured. What I've learned, and it very much is a learning as I've done it a lot more, and I'm really confident about the stuff that I teach, is that the only thing I need to do is have an understanding of what the key messaging I need to get out for the workshop is, whether it's an eight-hour workshop or whether it's a one-hour workshop. And then I need to turn up and be present to the needs of the room. And the needs of the room may not be what I think they are. And quite often, you know, it's very nerve-wracking because you have to have confidence you can hold a space verbally for eight hours. And those particular workshops, if you, know, you were there, if you think about it, you've got up to 20 people in a room all of whom have different businesses with different needs, with different emotional states, with different contexts. And I have to be able to engage with each one of them and I have to lock that away. Who's doing this? Who's doing what? Who had this experience? I have to have the intuitive part that is, okay, you're telling me this, but I'm really hearing something else on the inside and I need to come back and I need to circle back to you. And sometimes I need to call you out hard and other times I need to just hold you and let you be doing your thing. And I need to get that right because I don't want to be calling you out hard and pushing you if I think you're not really being transparent about what you need. And I have to be respectful of people that that will just break them into pieces and like ruin it for everyone. So there's the dance that you're doing constantly with every single individual. And it's not just about standing there and just talking out of your hole. It's really about being there, being with everyone and weaving around the whole day. And so a lot of the time I just spend kind of like literally, I feel like I get there and I turn my intuition on, I get out of my brain into my heart and I open my mouth and I let words come out and I feel my way through it. So it's unsophisticated in one sense because it relies 100% on faith that I'll know what to do. And the backing of yourself is really, it's a big call to do that. But I've done it at so many times now and I've had the most extraordinary experiences with people that I back that any time. Mm-hmm. I remember reading a thing that Pema Chodron wrote and she was talking about that when she first started teaching as a Buddhist and she was saying that her teacher had said to her, prepare, really, really prepare and then leave your notes at the door and walk in and begin. And I, re- I took that to heart and I really, I've been doing that a lot because you just, I just want to make sure that I'm not talking at someone who has a really different need. So it very much comes down to I need to be in service to all individuals. And I know my subject really well. And because I know my subject really well, I can apply it to people's experiences in a way that is going to be really sort of helpful. And I think that's it. Like you get, you have to do your 10,000 hours or whatever it is of domain expertise before you really are confident. Now, if I was getting up there talking about automotive engine manufacturing or you know, stuff that I had no idea about, it would just be a disaster. But, but because I'm talking, I'm working in my comfort zone. And then I also feel like there's a lot of bullshit around. There's a lot of people who are just kind of talking up a sale or talking up an extension of course or a, a thing that they're sort of, I just feel like when you're not there in service to the people, you don't give the same experience and you don't have the same outcomes because you've got another agenda. And so for me, it's really much about not having another agenda. I'm really quite clear. I, I wrote a book. I sell that book. You know, I do some coaching, but not much. And I hate doing it. Like I don't do it a lot 
And so I'm not there to, to flog stuff. I'm really there because I want people to genuinely have a good experience of business and spirituality and their lives. And if that's what I can contribute, that's awesome. And, you know, if not, that's awesome as well because, it, like, some people will come on the day and they'll be able to hear. Other people will come. They won't. They won't resonate with me or they won't love what I'm doing. But generally because of the setup, I'm, I'm quite approachable. And I don't and I don't come in in a suit and kind of high heels and be unapproachable in that way. Not saying those people are unapproachable, but that's not my style. So I'm the right person to talk to other yogis that don't feel intimidated because they've got some business craftsman in front of them. If you could sum up everything you've learned and everything you teach into one core essence, and you might have touched on this already, what do you think that one thing would be? We must be present in love. That's the only thing. That, that is everything we do all the time. Whatever f- revenue is attached to that, whatever doing is attached to that, we are standing in the face of divinity every day when we interact in the world. And that's the only thing we can bring to it is how do I amplify that for another? How do I meet that for another? How do I lay at the feet of that for another? And that's, that's all there is. That's all we have at the end of the day is us and our time here and th- that sense of our own heart. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, for what sharing. a pleasure. I'm never leaving. I'm going back to the sling. <laughs> I'm going to be doing aerial yoga for about a week now. You'll be out there going, has she gone yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can only have seven people for class tonight because that's Polly. <laughs> that's her hammock. <laughs> her face has gone a bit blue. She's been upside down for about 80 hours. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed our episode with Polly. I know we had a great time catching up with her and she has so much knowledge. So don't forget to enter our competition to win a signed copy of The Good Hustle and make sure to head to one of her workshops when she is next in your area. Our next episode is an interview with the incredible Emma Kenner. Emma is a globe-trotting hoop dance teacher originally from the UK and it's a great conversation. We talk about how she moved from a career working with her PhD in immunology to traveling the world as a hoop dance teacher. That is quite a big change. She tells us about how she went from starting her own hoop festival in the UK and some of the joys and more challenging realities of her job. It's a great conversation, so look out for that in two weeks. The theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and used with permission. Get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. Aroha nui. Big, big love.